0: Chapter Twenty One of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. Lord Shaftesbury's Text. Lord Shaftesbury's Text was emblazoned bit by bit on the creped banners that were borne in his funeral procession when the cortege turned into parliament street on its way to westminster abbey a sight was witnessed which as mr edwin hodder says can never be erased from the memory of the generation that beheld it london the city that has gazed upon so many solemn pomps and stately pageants had never seen such a funeral from the moment at which the coffin emerges from the home at grosvenor square to the moment of its arrival at the abbey doors the great black crowd stood bareheaded in the driving rain to do honour to one who had made the world a happier place for everybody in it lord shaftesbury had literally clothed a great people with spontaneous mourning and was going down to his grave amid the benedictions of the poor the most destitute and degraded had somehow contrived to procure a little tatter of black to wear upon the coat-sleeve or in the bonnet for every individual in that immense throng felt dumbly the poignant anguish of a personal sorrow the coffin when it lay in the abbey was buried beneath masses of the most exquisite flowers there were ornate wreaths from the crowned heads of europe and there were bunches of violets from the children of the ragged schools some of these fragrant tributes had been sent by princesses and some by flower-girls some had come from the homes of statesmen and some from the homes of costermongers. Some from palaces, and some from almshouses. Some from millionaires, and some from crossing-sweepers, shoe-blacks, and newsboys. But the incident, the outstanding incident, the incident that can never be forgotten, the incident that brings into dramatic and striking prominence Lord Shaftbury's text. What was it? Let Mr. Hodder tell his own story. As the funeral cortege passed into Parliament Square, he says, a sight was seen which will never be forgotten while this generation lasts. And he proceeds in graphic language to describe it. Grouped on the east or river side of the street were deputations from homes and asylums and refuges and schools and societies and training ships. Indeed, from all the missions and charities which, like flowers in the springtime, had sprung into existence under the magic of lord shaftesbury's influence each of these grateful groups wore a banner hung with crape and on each banner was emblazoned some words such as these i was unhungered and ye gave me meat i was thirsty and ye gave me drink i was a stranger and ye took me in i was naked and ye clothed me i was sick and ye visited me and i was in prison and ye came unto me bands of music playing the dead march were ranged at intervals, and as the procession passed these, heading the deputations with their eloquent banners, fell in and marched towards the abbey. There then on the banners stands Lord Shaftesbury's text, and if that day Lord Shaftesbury could have spoken, he would have said, Lord, when saw I thee an hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw I thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? or when saw i thee sick or in prison and came unto thee and the answer would have consisted of the old familiar words verily i say unto you inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren ye have done it unto me lord shaftesbury's religion like this text was intensely personal the emphatic word in the text the astonishing word the word that elicits a startled reply alike from the righteous and the wicked is the personal pronoun i was unhungered and ye gave me meat says the voice from the throne approvingly when cry those upon the right hand in surprise when saw we thee unhungered and gave thee meat i was a hungered and ye gave me no meat says the voice from the throne reproachfully when cry those upon the left hand in surprise when saw we thee unhungered and gave thee no meat. Inasmuch, replies the voice from the throne, inasmuch as ye did it unto the least of these, ye did it unto me. Inasmuch as ye did it not unto the least of these, ye did it not unto me. In the light of those revealing words, all life is reduced to a series of transactions between the individual soul and the individual Savior. Nothing is impersonal everything that i do i do to him my neglect is always the neglect of him in him i live and move and have my being the secret of lord shaftesbury's life was a profound recognition of this pervasive and penetrative truth to him the living christ the christ who died and rose again was everything my faith may be summed up in one word he used to say and that one word is jesus in season and out of season he pleaded with the churches to give the people the gospel i believe he said that the sole remedy for all our distress is one of the simplest and one of the oldest the sole the sovereign remedy is to evangelize the people by telling the story of the cross on every occasion and in every place in the stateliest cathedral and at the corner of each common street in the royal palace and in the back slums we must preach Christ to the people. We must determine, like Paul, to know nothing among men save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I believe with all my heart that He and He alone is the power of God unto salvation. In private life as in public, it is always the same. His journal is punctuated with entries such as this. March thirtieth, 1866 Again saw Henry Sturt. He was full of the same confidence, calm and resigned. Christ died for everyone, he said, and for me. Here he realized the highest point of Christian life in appropriating to himself, in faith and love, the merits of our Lord and Saviour. Lord Shaftesbury's faith is nothing if not personal. Christ and he, he and Christ, deal at first hand with each other. How did so sublime an understanding come into existence? On that point, there can be no uncertainty at all. The angel of Lord Shaftesbury's pilgrimage was Maria Millis. She was only a servant, a simple-hearted, affectionate Christian woman, true as steel to every conception of duty. She formed a strong attachment to the gentle, serious child, the biography tells us, and would take him on her knee and tell him Bible stories, especially the sweet story of the manger of Bethlehem and the cross of Calvary it was her hand that touched the delicate chords of his soul and awoke the first music of his spiritual life it was maria millis who taught him the first prayer that he ever learnt he used it constantly in later years and in his old age and particularly in times of sickness he very frequently found his tongue involuntarily framing those simple words in her will we are told she left him her watch a handsome gold one and until the day of his death he never wore any other. He was fond even to the last of showing it. That, he used to say, was given to me by the best friend I ever had. She told him the sweet story of the manger of Bethlehem and the cross of Calvary, and thus she introduced him, a frail little lad of seven, to a friendship that grew more intimate, more potent, and more fruitful as life went on william law says that if one looks at the way of the world one would hardly think that christians had ever read the twenty-fifth of matthew it is a grave indictment if however the religion of lord shaftesbury's is like his text intensely personal it is also like his text intensely practical it is one of the most grievous tragedies of the spiritual realm that the soul sometimes finds the sunny climate of an ardent evangelism singularly enervating the faith is sound yet nothing comes of it nobody can level such a charge against the evangelism of lord shaftesbury like his master he went about doing good how could it be otherwise when his life was modelled on such a text the finest comment ever made on this great passage in matthew was penned by lord charnwood in his life of abraham lincoln Lord Charnwood remarks that in the most moving and the most authentic of all visions of judgment, men were not set on the right hand or the left according as they were of irreproachable or reproachable character. They were divided into those who did and those who did not. Inasmuch as ye did it, ye did it unto me. Inasmuch as ye did it not, ye did it not to me. The same thought was always uppermost in the mind of Lord Shaftesbury take a typical instance from the record of his mature life it is a beautiful sunday afternoon in the autumn of his fifty-eighth year lord shaftesbury is spending a quiet hour with his bible it is open at the twenty-fifth of matthew he has read that noble passage a hundred times before but it acquires new interest with each perusal having carefully weighed and pondered every word he rises reaches for his journal and sets down his impressions They are, October 11th, 1857. Read this afternoon, Matthew 25. What a revelation of the future judgment of the human race! Those on the left hand are condemned, not for murder, robbery, debauchery, not for breaches of the Decalogue, or for open blasphemy, not for sins they have committed, but for duties they have omitted. Men say, I have done no harm. I am not worse than my neighbors and so on but god takes another view have you done good he asks it was because lord shaftesbury recognized these twin aspects of his text the intensely personal and the intensely practical that he became the greatest doer of his time inasmuch as ye did it says the text and lord shaftesbury's claim to immortality rests on the fact that he did things The record of his achievements fills a volume of eight hundred pages in the mines and the factories in the prisons and asylums among the waifs of the city and the toilers on the rural farms he effected reforms by which life was simply transfigured existence for countless thousands was scarcely tolerable until he came to their relief he revolutionized the whole industrial world his figure became the most familiar the most commanding and the most honoured in the public life of England. He was singularly good-looking, tall, slender, and extremely graceful. His form was statuesque, in the perfection of its poise and proportions. His head, with its handsome face and its clusters of dark curling hair, was reminiscent of a classic bust. Whether addressing the House of Lords, or talking to the ragamuffins of a London slum, he was always heard with the most profound respect, "'My lords!' exclaimed the Duke of Argyle, in a great political speech delivered in 1885. "'The social reforms of the past century have not been due to a political party. "'They have been due to the influence, the character, and the perseverance of one man. "'I refer, of course, to Lord Shaftesbury.' "'That,' said Lord Salisbury, in commenting upon the Duke's statement, "'is, I believe, a very true representation of the facts.' no more convincing proof could be desired that a true believer must, in the nature of things, become a great achiever. Lord Shaftbury's text says so. The spiritual world is divided into two hemispheres, the mystical and the material. They are both represented in the text, and for that reason they are both reflected in the life and labors of Lord Shaftesbury. The one of properly cultivated and developed leads naturally and inevitably to the other even goethe in his parable of the three reverences taught us as much wilhelm meister the reader will remember tells natalia of the strange and mysterious land which he had visited the children in the fields greeted him with three kinds of gestures the first class looked cheerfully up to the sky these he was afterwards informed represented reverence for things above them The second class looked round upon the beauty of the world these represented reverence for things about them the third class stood with downcast eyes they represented reverence for things beneath them wilhelm desired further enlightenment and was taken up by the chief to a kind of palace beautiful in the first apartment he finds exquisite representations of old testament story the interpreter explains to him That this place is sacred to the first reverence, reverence for things above us. These stories, he says, have done more than anything else to inculcate that lofty sentiment. In the second chapel, he meets equally beautiful representations of New Testament incidents. He is told that he is now in the place sacred to the second reverence, reverence for things about us. The New Testament, he is told, has done more than anything else to inspire that veneration. Then moving along the corridors, Wilhelm comes to a closed door. He asks to be admitted to the sacred precincts of the third reverence, the reverence for things beneath us. But it cannot be. The chief explains that the chapel to the third reverence is a sanctuary of sorrow, and only those who have been deeply taught by the first and second reverences can be admitted into that temple of tears. It is a perfect allegory, one has not to know much of the world in order to learn that when one comes into contact with men and women he is laying his hand on a quivering underworld of heartbreak and of anguish and only those who have been profoundly instructed in the old testament reverence for things above them and in the new testament reverence for things about them are qualified to look into those pitiful faces and those streaming eyes It was because of those old Bible stories that Maria Millis had so often unfolded to him, and it was because at her feet he had caught the spirit of that sweet story of the manger of Bethlehem and the cross of Calvary, that Lord Shaftesbury was able, in later years, to embark upon his wonderful humanitarian ministry. It was thus that the text made Lord Shaftesbury the greatest practical mystic of all time. He was essentially and instinctively a mystic he saw christ where nobody else discovered him as a lover hears his lady's name in the sigh of the wind and the song of the birds so having learned to love his saviour with all his soul lord shaftesbury found him everywhere sir Lonval found christ in the leper lord shaftesbury saw him in criminals orphans cripples paupers lunatics and chimney sweeps he spent all his time his fortune and his energy on them because he felt that inasmuch as he did it unto them he did it unto him thus i find him at dead of night in a thieves kitchen look at him he is surrounded by hundreds of the most desperate criminals in london they listen respectfully as he urges them to abandon their lawless lives but how one burglar wants to know how are we to live if we give it up lord shaftesbury urges them to pray for guidance but my lord one man replies prayer is very good but prayer won't fill an empty stomach the objector evidently mistook lord shaftesbury for a mere dreamer of dreams he did not know his man lord shaftesbury took the names of those who sincerely desired to live honestly and within a few months he had settled hundreds of them on canadian farms or introduced them to honourable and remunerative avocations at home pray there stands the mystic an immigration policy he is a practical mystic on his twenty-seventh birthday lord shaftesbury deliberately pledged himself in writing to seek two things the honor of god and the happiness of men when many years later mr gladstone was asked to draft an inscription for a monument to lord shaftesbury he said of him that he devoted the influence of his station the strongest sympathies of his heart AND THE GREAT POWERS OF HIS MIND TO HONORING GOD BY SERVING HIS FELLOW-MEN. NOW WHAT ARE THESE TWO THINGS BUT THE TWIN FACTORS THAT WE HAVE DISCOVERED EMBEDDED IN THE TEXT? THEY COLORED HIS ENTIRE CAREER, LEARNING EVERY DAY TO LOVE HIS SAVIOR A LITTLE MORE DEVOTEDLY, AND LEARNING EVERY DAY TO SERVE HIS FELLOW-MEN A LITTLE MORE EFFECTIVELY. HE WOVE THE PATTERN OF THAT GREAT TEXT INTO THE FABRIC OF A SINGULARLY WINSOME AND USEFUL LIFE. THERE'S NO MORE TO BE SAID. The supreme business of life is to follow his lead. End of chapter twenty one.